In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's a great joy for me to be here with you this morning and to have this opportunity once again uh, to participate in your worship service and really in the community life here at St. Luke's. It's just such a joy to be here, and I so appreciate the warm welcome that I've received and connecting with people I've gotten to know over the last couple of years, so thank you so much. But this morning, I want to begin with a question. And I'll tell you, it's a question that I'm sure you're going to be able to relate to. And here's my question. How stressful is your life? How stressful is your life? If they hooked you up to some kind of a stress meter, you know, put one on each ear or something, where would the needle be? You know, would it be down in the calm green zone or moving up? Or would it be bobbing furiously in the red zone. How stressful is your life today? Now, the truth is, we all face stress in life. There's no getting around it. Stress is just part of our human experience. And when you think about it, that stress comes at us in lots of different ways. So, for one thing, we have the stress of our schedules, especially at this time of the year. You know, when people or kids are going back to school, it kind of rearranges everything. And the start of a new church year, there's lots of great new things happening. It just seems like there's so many great things to do and not enough time to get it all done. And then there's the stress of our finances. Am I going to get a good job? Am I going to hold my job? Is the economy going to go up or down? And what about my retirement? Is there going to be enough for me? And then there's the stress of our health. You know, all those diseases we hear about. I don't think I like to listen to the news anymore because it just, every ad is about a new disease to be stressed out about. And what about healthy food? What about health care? It all gets kind of stressful. And then there's stress in our relationships. Even in a good marriage, there's stresses and strains. And when our marriages really start to come apart, it kind of tears us apart from the inside out and our families, and our co-workers, and all the stress and friction that comes in relationships, the stress of our mistakes, you know, the things that haven't gone right in life, the brokenness, the sin, the things we wish we could do over, but we can't. And then there's what I call the stress of happiness. You know, it's like, this is America, you know, the pursuit of happiness, and you watch television and ads, you know, they all have the right hair, they got the right watch, they drive the right car, they seem happy, what about me? I'm stressed out, I'm just barely holding on. And so here I am today, a guest at St. Luke's, and I'm here to talk about the joy of stress. And you may be thinking, well, come on, the joy of stress, what kind of Christian double talk is that? I mean, uh, we come to church for more peace, not more stress. So maybe the real question that we have to think about this morning is, where is the joy of stress? And how can we find it? Now, to answer that question, I want us to take a second look at our Old Testament reading for today, from Exodus chapter 14. And you might want to follow along in your service leaflet or your Bible, whatever, because I'll be referring to it. And also, those of you who are Encounter with God readers with Scripture Union, you know we've just covered this uh, set of readings in Encounter with God. 
But this is a time when Moses and the Israelites were facing an enormous amount of stress. And so what we want to do is look at how they dealt with the stress that they faced and see if we can learn some things for the stresses that we face today. Now, a little bit of context, and I know you know this passage well. You know Moses at the Red Sea. It's one of those ones that we all know. But just a little bit of review. You know, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, and it's gotten progressively worse. Okay, you know, Pharaoh's getting meaner and meaner and more hard-hearted, less, you know, less straw, more bricks, that whole thing. And finally, it becomes intolerable. So God raises up Moses to lead the people out. Remember, let my people go and the 10 plagues. And finally, God, through that, wears down Pharaoh's hard-heartedness and they're released into the desert to worship God. A joyous exodus. But now they find themselves in a vice grip of stress because they have the Red Sea on one hand and the most powerful army in the world bearing down on them on the other. It's a vice grip of stress. Have you ever had a period in your life where you feel like you're in a vice grip of stress, where it's almost too much for you to handle? And their stress took several forms. It was practical stress. I mean, they were in physical danger, right? I mean, how stressful is it when you feel like you're vulnerable in some way, right? But it was also personal stress, especially for Moses, because it was his decision that got them into this predicament. Have you ever been responsible for people in your family, children, co-workers, others in your extended family that count on you and you make a decision that turns out to be difficult for them? That's stressful. And then there was spiritual stress. You know, they all had to be wondering, maybe afraid to even verbalize it out loud. Now, wait a minute. We thought God was leading us here. Maybe this, maybe we've got this wrong. It's not the exodus. Maybe it's the end. There was a spiritual stress that was going on. And I think all of us find those times in life where the stress just seems to press down on us. You may not be pinned down at the Red Sea, but you have something similar that just seems overwhelming, practically, personally, spiritually, what are we going to do? Well, I think what we want to do here this morning is take a look at three different reactions to this stressful moment at the Red Sea, this crisis at the Red Sea, because I think the three different reactions that we see in this passage reveal three different principles that we can apply to today so how we can find the joy of stress today. Now, the first reaction was the reaction of the Israelites. And um, you can see that in verses 10 through 12. And I would describe their reaction to this crisis at the Red Sea this way. It was complain and blame. Complain and blame. You see what it says in verse 11. They say to Moses, what have you done to us? You know, Uh, apparently they hadn't read the gospel lesson for today because in the gospel lesson, it counsels us to be proactive, right? About resolving our differences with people. Go yourself, go with someone else, take it, you know, involve the church. But the point is, don't let it fester. Be proactive in resolving the conflict and friction that we have. The children of Israel are not interested in that right now. It's all about complain and blame. And this tendency was not just a one-time thing with them. 
Actually, this was a sin pattern for the Israelites, complaining and blaming. So if you look at Exodus chapter 13, uh, 16, when they get hungry, what do they do? It says in Exodus 16 that they grumbled. In fact, that word is used seven times in that chapter. They really grumbled and grumbled against Moses, complaining and blaming. So finally, God produces manna and quail. In the next chapter, Exodus 17, they get thirsty. They forget about the Exodus. They forget about the manna. They forget about the quail. They complain and blame again. So God produces water from a rock. And finally, Moses has had it. He throws up his hands and he says, you know what, you're complaining is not good. You're not complaining against me. Your issue is with God. That's who you're complaining and blaming. And you see, what was happening is the stresses that they faced on their wilderness journey was exposing the underlying sin pattern in their lives. And that's what stress can do for us if we are open to see what God is doing. I remember one time uh, early in our marriage, my wife Carol and I had been married for a few years. We were living in West Philadelphia and uh, we were gonna buy a house, our first house. Um, Our friends were buying houses and stuff. So we thought, oh, you know, we want the American dream. We're gonna find the dream house. You know, we're gonna be so happy. And, uh, but you know, we, we couldn't find anything that we could afford. So it was an inner city neighborhood and sort of a rough part of town. And we found this three-story row house that was abandoned at one point, And that was the house that we were going to buy. We were going to fix it up, you know, be the urban pioneers. And uh, you know how in Money Magazine they have a before and after picture? You know, the struggling young couple buys the broken down house. And there's a picture of, you know, they got their ratty clothes and, the, you know, the bicycle out front or something. And then the after picture is they fixed up the house. It's all beautiful, worth a lot of money. They've got spiffy clothes, BMW out front. Well, we made it to the before picture, but we never made it to the after picture because that, was the, that house was the original money pit. And, um, but the only way we could afford this dream house was two ways. We had to get a special loan from the FHA and we had to rent out the third floor. And there was a little decrepit kitchen on the third floor. And if we got the rental income and the special loan, we could make it all work for our dream house. So when the FHA inspector came around, he looked around, he saw the kitchen on the third floor and he said, I can't pass this. And we said, why? He said, because we can only give these loans for single family homes. And this obviously is going to be a a two-family place, so we have to fail it. And I was devastated. Oh, no, my dream house, you know, everything is over. My house of cards has come down. And then the realtor came to us and said, listen, don't worry, you know, I can fix this for you. You know, we'll tell you what we'll do. We'll get one of our workmen, no, you know, no cost to you, and we'll come in and we'll take that kitchen out. So we'll take out the cabinets, we'll take out the sink, we'll take out the stove, cap off the gas, we'll put all those fixtures up in the front room and we'll put it under a drop cloth. You know, like a big painter's tarp, a drop cloth. And he said, then we'll get the inspector back and they don't care, believe me, it's just a bunch of picky rules, they could care less, everybody does it, trust me. So I said, well... Okay. So the inspector came and he looked in the kitchen like, hmm, pretty bright in here, but where's the sink? Where's the stove? 
He looked around in the front room. There's a big lump in the middle of the front room with a drop cloth over it. Hmm. And he passed us and we got the loan. Well, I mean to tell you that first year in the house, everything went wrong. We had a slate roof, okay, a mansard slate roof and the slates were falling off and the rain was coming in all the time. Um, You know, it had a it had a furnace that was an old coal furnace converted to oil and it blew and was shooting these white particles into the house. We had a newborn at the time. It was a disaster. The, the, the foundation was cracked and settling. And the worst thing was there was this main pipe that went up through the house. It was called the soil stack uh, to all three stories. We didn't realize it when we bought the house, but the thing was had holes all in it. So every time you flush the toilet, use the bathroom, anything, whoosh, it was out into the walls. Yeah, it was a disaster. And after a year of this, I finally said to Carol, you know, I don't know if all of this is related, but I don't feel right about the way we got the loan. And she said, neither do I. And so we prayed and we said, Lord, we didn't mean to compromise our integrity. We didn't mean to cut corners. But you know what? We did, Lord. And it wasn't right. And we're sorry. Forgive us. Now, I'd like to tell you that at that point, the roof stopped leaking and the furnace started working and then the flush was a lot better. It didn't happen. It was three years of a lot of struggle and stress and misery. And yet, it was one of the times in our marriage where we grew the most spiritually. That's what happens if we embrace the stresses. God uses them to cause us to grow. And that leads us to the first principle that I think comes out of this passage. And before I give it to you, I need to, I need to start with an important qualifier. And you need to listen to this. And the qualifier is that not all stress is the result of sin. Not all difficulties and problems are the result of sin. And to say that to people before we really understand the situation that they're in can be cruel and confusing. And yet, and yet, sometimes God does use the stressful situations in our lives to force us to confront the underlying sin patterns that have gotten underneath. I want to press this a little bit further, and I hope you'll go with me in this. I want to ask you a a question. Is there something under the drop cloth in your life today? Something that's not right. Something that you know is there. Something that God knows is there. Something that's stressing you out from the inside out. Well, I would encourage you, and you know what, I'm not going to sugarcoat this, but I would encourage you to pull that drop cloth off. It will be painful. It is painful to deal with the brokenness and sin in our lives. But I would encourage you, pull it off and say, God, today I want to say I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I didn't want to. But I did. And I ask you to forgive me. It is painful, but I can assure you of this. When we do that, when we confront, we pull the drop cloth off, There's nothing better than the joy of forgiven sin. 
Well, there's a second reaction in this passage, and that is the reaction that Moses had to this crisis at the Red Sea. And this is the one that kind of stands out. This is the one we remember. It's a bold statement of faith, right? He says in verse 13, don't be afraid, stand firm. And you just want to say, you know, go Moses, you know, amen, man, yes. You know, and we all want to be like that. But let me ask you a question. When you think of Moses, what image comes to your mind? I know, I know. Charlton Heston, right? Ten Commandments, okay? That's what we all think. That was his signature role, right? He was all strong and righteous, you know, hair blowing back, got the tablets, you know, tan and muscular. You know, I don't know how they got that Bowflex out in the desert because he was really, you know, he was toned. But that's only part of the picture of Moses because if you carefully read the scripture, you get a fuller picture. Because what the Bible tells us is that at this point, Moses is 80 years old. He spent 40 years in Egypt. Now he spent 40 years in the desert. So he's past retirement age, okay? The Bible tells us that he had anger issues, right? Remember when he, he saw that altercation happening, he hauled off and hit a guy. He lost it. The guy's got anger issues. Not only that, he's got a criminal record because the guy died. So he's been on the run from the law for 40 years. And now he's living with his in-laws. Come on. (laughs) He's got a dead-end job, tending sheep out in the desert. No wonder he wants to be alone. And now this, you know, he probably thought he's sitting there by himself. Oh, man, you know, I blew it the first time and now I've blown it a second time. Look at the jam I've gotten everybody in. I've failed. You see, the point was the real Moses was no Charlton Heston. In spite of his weakness, Moses makes this bold statement of faith. That's the context that we get this in. And that leads us to our second principle, that declaring our trust in God at the point of our weakness is the way to turn our stress into an opportunity for God to show his strength. It's not that you're strong that you're willing to acknowledge God's strength that gets you through. Maybe some of you have heard of Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China back in the early 1900s. Millions of conversions, planted thousands of churches over 50 years. He was asked at the end of his ministry, what sums up the success that you had? And he put it this way. He said, God was looking for someone weak enough to use, and he found me. I wonder in the church if we're weak enough for God to use so he can show his power. One last reaction in this passage, and it's one that's easy to miss. It's the reaction of God because God wasn't stressed out. I mean, he's all-powerful, sovereign God, so stress doesn't apply to him, and yet he does have a reaction to it. And I have to say, if you look at verses 15 to 18, I was kind of surprised by this. You know, because when Moses makes his bold statement of faith, you'd sort of expect an attaboy, right? Attaboy, that's what I want to hear. Like with Solomon. Remember when Solomon was given the choice to, you know, he could pick anything he wanted and he picked wisdom. And God said, because you picked wisdom, I'll give you the riches and long life also. I'll throw it all in. But here, the reaction after Moses' statement of faith is kind of abrupt. You see that there? He says, what are you waiting for? Move forward kind of abrupt. 
And if you look at other translations, like the NIV, he says, move forward. In the King James, I mean, in the New Living, it's even blunter, I think. God says, get moving. See, I think the point here is when we're facing stress and difficulty, there is a time, an important part of the process to wait and pray. But then there's a time to step out in faith, to get moving in response to our stress. I remember one time I was asked to speak at a men's retreat, a group of Presbyterian men in New York. And um, I was doing a, a weekend set of messages, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And I was speaking on Saturday, and my theme was, bring your friends to Jesus, okay? How important it is to bring your friends to Jesus. You may not have all the answers, but bring your friends to Jesus. As I'm going on like this, I'm really trying to, you know, make a great point. A guy in the front row, I later learned his name was Jim, he interrupted me in the middle of my talk, and he says out loud, I can't listen to this anymore. Now, I'll just show my cards a little bit. As a, as a guest preacher, okay, that's not what you're looking to hear, okay? You're making your best point. You don't want them to say, I can't listen to this anymore, you know? I mean, I'm hoping for a respectful yawn, okay? But not that. So he says, I can't listen to this anymore. And he turns around to the guys in the group. And he said, I can't listen to this anymore because my buddy Don is up in the bed and he won't come down. We all know Don. You know, he came to the first session on Friday, but he won't come down now. And he's got problems in his marriage. He's an Iraq war vet. He's starting to have substance abuse issues. I can't sit here and listen to this knowing that my buddy Don is up there struggling. And then he looks back at me and I'm thinking, whoa, what do you want me to do about it? It's like, this is your group. Come on. Uh, So so he said, we should pray. And I'm thinking, good, pray, you know, go ahead. And it was like, no, we need to go up and pray for Don. So, uh, okay, I've lost control, fine, let's go up and pray for Don. So we all troop up, 50 guys, you know, jam in his room, flowing down the halls. And uh, Jim says, hey, Don, we're here to pray for you, man. And one by one, these guys started praying for Don, who was still under the covers. We couldn't even see him. And they just these heartfelt prayers for their buddy who was struggling and depressed. And then it got silent. And it was kind of like, well, now what do we do? I mean, we're just a bunch of guys. We don't know what to say. You know, we don't, we don't talk. What do we do now? And one of the guys said, let's say praise the Lord ten times. <laughs> And I'm thinking, praise the Lord, 10 times? It's like, well, I don't think that's the way Benny Hinn would do it, but all right, let's give it a try. So they started. Praise the Lord, 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 praise the Lord. 50 guys praising the Lord over one man down. And I'll tell you what, it was a spiritually electric moment. And then it got quiet again. And finally, Don peeks out from under the covers and he looks up at all of us and he says, okay, I'll come down now. (laughs) You see, the point is, Jim didn't have a plan. He didn't know what would happen, but he was willing to step out and do something to help his buddy. I think that's the message 
of this passage and the, and the why God is responding this way. There's a time to step forward and take action. Maybe you know Oswald Chambers. He wrote that classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He, was a, uh, he led a Bible college. He was a chaplain in World War I. He had lots of stresses and problems he had to deal with. And when he was overwhelmed, he would say to himself and the people around him, he would say this, trust God and do the next thing. Trust God and do the next thing. I think that's what God is saying to Moses and to the Israelites and to us. When you're overwhelmed by stress, trust me and move forward. Well, that brings us back to our original question. Where is the joy of stress and how can we find it? Well, I think we've discovered from this passage that if we use the moments of stress that we all face to confront our underlying sin patterns, to rely on God's strength, and then to step out in faith, then those very moments of stress enable us to grow in our faith and actually grow closer to God more so than anything else can do for us. And ultimately, that's the joy, the bittersweet joy of stress. Amen.